If you look hard enough, you can find conspiracies to defraud workers in every corner of the economy. And those conspiracies are usually dressed up as something entirely different. Take the people who work for the VA, the Veterans Administration. There is a conspiracy right now to crush their union and cut wages, all dressed up in the cloak of quote-unquote efficiency through privatization. And in the glittering world of Hollywood, talent agencies are pocketing huge fees as essentially payoffs from studios in a broad conspiracy that is taking away money from writers of movies, the people that talent agencies are supposed to be representing. So into the world of conspiracies, we dive. This is Jonathan Tassini, and this is the Working Life Podcast for July 3rd, 2019. A reminder first, as usual, that this podcast is sponsored by the American Postal Workers Union, which fights for dignity and respect on the job, decent pay and benefits, and safe working conditions for its 200,000 United States Postal Service employees and retirees, and also nearly 2,000 private sector mail workers. You can, of course, hear the podcast on the Progressive Radio Network, as usual, Thursdays at 6 p.m. You can find it on Spotify, iTunes, and all sorts of other great places on the internet like Stitcher. We depend, of course, not just on our major sponsor, but also small financial sponsors like you, like all our listeners. So please go over to workinglife.org, click on the podcast tab, and look for our link to Patreon so you can become a financial sponsor of the show at whatever level you can afford and keep us humming, humming, humming along. God, I am so sick of hearing about the glory that privatization is supposed to bring. We've heard about this nonsense for decades, and it just continues to be this disease that infects the political debate, brought by members of both parties who bow down to the so-called free market, even though privatization has proven to be a complete fraud. It doesn't save money. It just delivers more of our money into the hands of CEOs who enrich themselves on the public dime. And that's happening at the VA. We've talked on the podcast in the past about the attacks against the VA and its workers, attacks mostly carried out by the same flag-waving patriots who use veterans as campaign photo ops or sloganeering. But when it comes down to actually taking care of vets when they end their active duty, those same flag-wavers engage in a conspiracy to kick vets to the curb by trying to eviscerate the VA. And let's be clear, the conspiracy is rooted in anti-unionism. There is such a hatred of unions and hardworking government employees that the ideologues don't actually give a hoot about delivering good care to vets. Because the fact is that the care the vets get at the VA is far superior to what they get out there in the private sector. And that has been shown time after time. And now that attack is picking up. Just a few weeks ago, the implementation began of something called, in typical Orwellian language, the Mission Act. And it will force more vets to seek care in the private sector. And they will not get better care because the VA, as I just said, has been shown, despite the media drumbeat to the contrary, that it provides care. And now I'm quoting from the RAND Corporation, not some left-wing organization. And I'm quoting now. It provides care equal to or better than care delivered in the private sector, close quote. And that makes sense when you think about it. 
The VA only serves vets. So it has a deep reservoir of expertise, data, and treatment that is unique to vets that most doctors and hospitals in the private sector just don't have. This right-wing so-called Mission Act was slowly undercut the VA's ability to do its jobs for vets. And here's the main ideological goal of this nonsense. It will erode the ability of the workers' union, the American Federation of Government Employees, to protect the rights of VA workers, mainly by taking away the ability of the union advocates, the grievance handlers and the other union officials, to work on the clock to take up grievances for members and enforce contract provisions. So to explore this some more, I want to welcome in Marilyn Park and Eric Gerken. Marilyn is a legislative representative for the AFGE in Washington, D.C., and Eric is the executive vice president and legislative political coordinator for the union's local 2152 that is based in Nevada. And we know, Eric and Marilyn, that this whole notion of privatization is really an attempt to break unions. And one of the things that we see right now, and the reason that I'm circling back to you at this time, I've talked to the AFGE in the past about the attacks on the VA, but there is something called the Mission Act, which has just been implemented recently and is really one of the biggest attacks on the VA that we've seen in recent times. So explain, Marilyn, to my listeners the basics of the Mission Act and what it really says it's going to do, and then we'll get to the falsehoods about it. The Mission Act is the most extreme piece of legislation ever enacted to allow care to go outside the VA into the private sector. VA has always allowed some privatization because people live in rural areas or they might have a short-term um, a shortage of a certain specialist or somebody has unique medical need. So there's always been a certain amount of private care. But over the years, it has uh, stepped up. And the Mission Act, which took effect on June 7th, as you said, is so extreme that almost every veteran patient care could go outside the VA and deplete the VA of so many resources that it will not survive. And so not only will there be a constant flow outside the VA, but then there is a piece that would allow entire units to go to be shut down. So for example, you could close all of orthopedics or you could close the emergency room. And if that were not enough, they added another piece in at the 11th hour called a BRAC. It's like a military base closing, except it's for the VA. And it would allow them to say that a certain VA is too deficient and should be shut down permanently because it's not utilized. But if you starved it already of resources and sent so much care outside, then you have laid the groundwork for bracking it. And, you know, you can, they try to brack military bases, but maybe you can move tanks to another area, but you can't move healthcare to another area. So all it does is just push more care outside. It's a disaster. And one of the things I really want my listeners to know, and frankly, my listeners are pretty sophisticated. I would consider them pro-union progressives, but I think that people are bombarded so much about the VA and the terrible conditions in the VA that they think privatization actually would do better for veterans when in fact it's the opposite. And I mentioned in passing an article that was written in the Washington Post that 
talked about a RAND review, a RAND Corporation. We know the RAND Corporation is not some left-wing organization. They did a review of the literature, and they concluded, and I'm quoting it, the quality of care delivered by VA is generally equal to or better than care delivered in the private sector. And that, then I end the quote. And that shouldn't surprise people who have to grapple with the private sector, certainly the insurance industry and the medical industrial complex. But the VA does deliver great care to vets, right, Marilyn? Absolutely. It has specialists for that particular population. So it's great for what veterans uniquely need. It also has some of the leading medical research in the country and best practices that all of us as healthcare consumers benefit from. And the other issue is sometimes in this country, as we see, not-for-profit care and care that looks at the whole person is also always superior. And I want to point out that the RAND corporations continue to give the VA very high ratings since that Philip Longman article consistently, as have other independent groups. Yes. And just to your point, and then in a minute, I'm going to ask Eric to weigh in here. To your point, veterans require special kind of care because especially those who have been in combat and suffered awful injuries they require the kind of specialization and knowledge and integrated information that the VA contains right. almost historically and in in depth inside its records where if you force people to go out to the private sector, even if you have a, a good doctor, they just don't have the background to care for veterans in a very integrated way, right? Absolutely. First of all, fragmented care is not good for any of us when we're very sick. We shouldn't have to go to multiple places and have them connect the dots for us. But for a veteran who has complex uh, conditions, not always so easy to detect, like traumatic brain injury or Agent Orange exposure or PTSD, they should be able to go to an integrated care system where the primary care links directly to the mental health care and to other specialists and make sure the whole person's being treated. And you're right, they're unique conditions. There, there are so many of them that are not recognized in the rest of the private sector. And it's, to me, a terrible disservice to them to send them out there for those kinds of conditions that they're dealing with. And so to bring you, Eric, into the conversation, you actually, let's start with this, you actually worked for the VA. That's correct. I'm a VA employee. And what did you do? What's your, what's your specialization? I'm an occupational therapist. Mm -hmm. And in that capacity, what does that mean? Give us kind of an example of what you would do on a daily basis for vets who came in to see you. Occupational therapy is not very well known in the public, but it's an, an integral part of the rehabilitation team. And occupational therapists do different treatment techniques based on what setting they're in. For instance, I've worked for many years treating patients with hand hand therapy issues or hand injuries, whether you've got tennis elbow or your thumb sore or your wrist hurts or you have issues with working on your computer or you cut your tendon. Those are kinds of hand therapy issues that occupational therapists frequently deal with. But we also work with patients after they've had joint replacements or they're in long-term care, like a skilled nursing facility setting. We have a dedicated setting like that at the VA. And so occupational therapists are integral in treating veterans on all of those all of those different uh, 
facilities. Now, about a year ago, you joined the union to work 100% of your time as a chief steward for the local, Local 2152. So I want you to shift your hat for a second and tell us a little bit about what the workers are reacting to, how they're feeling about not just the Mission Act, but the general attack against their workplace, against their ability to do their work and serve veterans. Sure. So you bring up a very important point about how VA employees are, when we work to do representational activities uh, for AFGE, we are we remain VA employees and we, re, we continue to be paid by the VA, but we are, our time is allocated to doing representational tasks, and we call that official time. And it's an incredibly important part of AFGE that we continue to have official time so that we can do the work of representing employees. So, by the way, this kind of advocacy that we're doing right now, I can't do that when I'm on official time. I had to arrange time to be off work and not be paid right now. Um, but So this is on my personal time. When we're on the clock doing advocacy work, we are doing things like going to meetings with employees when they're receiving discipline or uh, working with employees and managers on being able to be a more cohesive unit or a number of different things that we do to facilitate a constructive working environment for the for the employees at the VA so that they can take care of veterans. So you're dealing with the rank and file day to day, and I'm trying to get a sense for our listeners What's the level of anger, the frustration, the feeling that, hey, we work really hard to care for the vets, and you've got then this administration that essentially wants to destroy their livelihood, partly by making it very difficult for you to work in that representation role. They want to take away your ability to represent members in the way you described it. So they must feel very frustrated. Well, you know, unfortunately, this is kind of like the fact that Many of the people listening to this podcast probably aren't familiar with the Mission Act. They're probably not aware of the threat to the VA that's going on. And to, to be honest, the vast majority of employees also are, you know, they're busy having families and working hard. Federal employees work really hard every day to take care of uh, veterans at the VA. And we're out just letting them know, hey, did you know that our contract with the VA is being renegotiated right now? And most of them are not even aware of that. And uh, and as far as the Mission Act, people are being trained at the VA about the Mission Act quite a bit right now. And they're concerned. They're, they are wondering, why are these, why are all these mechanisms being set up to move veteran care outside of the into the community because we know, and the veterans tell us every day, I don't want to go out in the community. I want to be treated somewhere where providers are familiar with my the things that go on with veterans, where if I have a mental health care issue, I can be sent to mental health care. I can go right down the hall and pick up my uh, medications before I leave the building. So that the employees are just wondering, why is this happening? What's the point of setting up all these mechanisms for veterans to go out into the community so easily, especially when there's not a mechanism in place to help the veteran make a fully educated decision on whether it's better or whether 
something's better about going to the into the community or not. But the veterans' inclination is to get their care at the VA because that's where they want to be cared for. And Marilyn, back to you. I, I noted that one of the things that jumped out at me when I was doing a little bit of research is that there's actually 50,000 vacancies in the VA system. And you would think that if this wasn't just about union busting, which it clearly is attacking <laughs> unions, that the administration or Congress would say, hey, let's fill those 50,000 vacancies. Let's put more resources into the VA. By the way, I always... Um, I'm saying love in a sarcastic way, love all those flag-waving Republicans, especially who talk about patriotism. And then when it comes to funding the VA and taking care of vets, they just kick them out the door and they have no interest in funding people. So this clearly, if you look at the vacancies and the fact that, as we talked about before, that actually servicing vets inside the VA system is much more efficient than privatization, this really is just old-fashioned union busting, isn't it? Absolutely. It would cost so much less and serve the veterans so much better to fill those 50,000 vacancies. Yet the current secretary, of course, speaking for the Trump administration, Secretary Wilkie, has said before Congress on multiple occasions, he refuses to fill all of those vacancies. He'll pick and choose what he wants to fill. And yet the very excuse for sending people out to the private sector, where, as Eric said, they don't want to go and they have no idea if they're going to see anybody quickly or a person of equal quality, because there's no data on that. Um, the, reason, the number one reason for sending them out is because they can't be seen quickly in the VA, but they won't fill the vacancies. So absolutely, it's um, a way to kill the VA and kill federal. The VA is an enormous employer of federal employees, uh, 700,000, and uh, you slowly chip chip away at the, at the federal government agency, you know, each agency at a time by all these different attacks that you've mentioned. And that's a great segue to bringing in something else to look at the macro picture. And that is at this very moment the Environmental Protection Agency is now trying to impose its own essentially union-busting contract on the AFG, basically saying, we don't want to talk to you. We're going to just impose what we want, right? Absolutely. I just, By the way, I'd just like to correct that the VA um, has about 350,000, but it's just, it's one of the largest agencies. Um, so yes, the EPA is, is, as we like to call it, They've been Betsy DeVos, and as your listeners probably know, Betsy DeVos, um, you know, was none too happy to be the first uh, cabinet secretary to go ahead and bust the union there. But it was really just a template, which she was happy to try out for them to go on to other agencies, Social Security, Agriculture, EPA, and VA's no, not too far behind. So as you mentioned, it was just reported that EPA, the the the, the MO of these union busters is as following. First of all, during negotiations, they pretend to negotiate. They bring in ringers. They don't bring in people who have authority to negotiate, and they don't really make a serious effort. Then they make proposals that are so extreme that the union can only reject them and try to negotiate something differently. And then they say, see, the union's unwilling to negotiate. So then they use that authority to go ahead and say, now we have to impose our own new contract. And that new contract usually has like 10% of the articles and protections of the other one and destroys all the basic rights we have. And it's not only horrific for the employees there who end up working in unsafe conditions and don't have any recourse for discipline, but it also 
is an attempt to make the union irrelevant. Because if we have no ability to protect them in the contract, and including things like making us sign them up every once a year and you know putting all this effort into just keeping them in the membership, basically it, it kills the union at the same time that it, it kills the contract. Mm. So to wrap up our conversation, and then I'll first ask Eric to comment to this, and Marilyn, uh, why don't you bring up the rear on this? What do we do? Eric, what are you trying to do to push back against this attempt to bust the union in your area, uh, both in terms of educating the rank and file, but organizing people to stand up? With regards to the our contract, our master agreement, we're walking around and, and meeting with employees meeting with them at our monthly union meetings and through our email contacts and letting them know the VA is not negotiating as a good faith partner and just make sure they're aware of that. What they can do then is contact our legislators, our senators and congresspersons and make sure that they stand up and speak out and say something to Secretary Wilkie and say, we will not accept this We want to have unions because the Civil Service Reform Act of 1978 said we need unions in the federal government because it benefits the public for a more efficient workforce. We want our congresspersons to speak up and make sure that Secretary Wilkie is aware that that's the expectation and we want that promise kept. Mm-hmm. And that's a great segue to ask Marilyn, look, the Democrats do control at least one house of Congress right now. Do they have the ability to stop this attack against the AFG in terms of its representation rights? Well, they certainly have the ability to put pressure with the people who have the power of the purse on the secretary to say, you are not serving veterans by destroying the union. And we're very pleased that on June 5th, the letter was sent by 128 members of the House of Representatives to Secretary Wilkie to ask him to stop this unreasonable behavior. And we um, hope to have the Senate do the same too, because uh, one thing the agency needs is Congress to fund them. And also they can be called before them for oversight, like we're seeing in many other on many other issues. And uh, that's what Eric's hard work and the work of his colleagues out in the field is, is to remind the people who they put into office that uh, a great deal is at stake here and we need to call Secretary Wilkie to the carpet. So, Eric, we hear about this Mission Act and they're supposed to implement it in a certain way, meaning giving veterans a whole slew of information about if they decide to go outside the VA system and go into, the, if you will, the private sector, they're supposed to know a lot of stuff, right? And tell us what they're supposed to know and do they ever get that information before they make that decision? Sure. So veterans, when they are going to schedule an appointment, if if the Mission Act is really about improving veterans' health care and giving them a better choice to conceivably choose another option if they want to, you would think they would be given the, enough information to make an educated choice about that. So right now, if you are a veteran at the VA and you are scheduling that appointment and they can't get in within about 30 days, then they're offered an opportunity to go into the community. There's supposed to be a decision tool available to the scheduler to let the veteran know oh, well, you can go in the community. By the way, it's going to take you 60 days to be seen in the community, but we can see you here in 40. What would you prefer? Or if the veteran has to drive more than 25 minutes to get to the facility, then they're offered the opportunity to go to into the community for care. 
But again, the decision tool is not available to say, by the way, that clinic you want to go to is 60 minutes away. Is that really where you want to go? Or would you rather come here where it's closer? Those things are supposed to be available according to the, the way the Mission Act is written. And that information is not available. And that's just goes to show that this is not about improving veteran health care. This is just about pushing those veterans out into the community and taking that money away from the VA because the funds to go seen in the community where it costs more is just taken right out of the general fund of the VA. It's always been true. We watch TV shows or films, and most of us know the actors, the familiar faces who do what they do to entertain us, but most times, writers of the shows, the people who actually give the character and plot to anything that we like, those writers are mostly invisible. But they are also a highly organized group within the labor community in the entertainment industry, and they are represented by the Writers Guild of America. And right now, those writers for TV and movies and also gaming are engaged in an epic battle against the people who, in theory, are supposed to be championing writers' economic interests. And those are the talent agencies. You see, it turns out that the talent agencies have been serving another master— the studios. By cutting so-called packaging deals with studios, talent agencies get big fees in the back door. Now, that might seem to some to be okay, but that's a huge conflict of interest. The talent agencies are supposed to be representing, well, the talent, like writers, essentially the workers employed by studios. Instead, the talent agency's economic interests are increasingly massively aligned with the studios. And that can mean bad things for writers, especially the middle-class writers who have steadily been losing ground even as the industry, which has added monster players like Netflix, is making billions of dollars. Think of it. A talent agency is getting big fees from a studio for a package deal. And that studio is also underpaying a writer who is in the stable of the same talent agency. Is that talent agency going to fight for more money for that individual writer if it puts that talent agency at odds with a studio writing the agency big checks? Uh, Well, you do the math. So the Writers Guild of America basically sought to end this conspiracy between talent agencies and studios by changing the terms of the talent agency's agreement with the Writers Guild an agreement which lays out the terms under which the talent agencies can represent Writers Guild of America members. The Association for the Talent Agencies refused. And then thousands of Writers Guild members in mass fired their agents. The Writers Guild sued the association and its members for illegal business practices. And now some of the agencies have countersued the WGA. 
Here to fill us in on the fight is the WGA's president, David Goodman. David's actually been in the business for over three decades and has written for over 20 TV series, including Wings, Dream On, Star Trek Enterprise, just as a side, you're talking to a Trekkie here, Dads, and Futurama. He has also served as a showrunner, and for my listeners, a showrunner, you may know this, has creative and management responsibility of a television series production in comedy or dramas, and can also be the series creator. So he was a showrunner and executive producer on American Dad and Alan Gregory starring Jonah Hill. His best-known work is on Family Guy, where he was head writer and executive producer for over 100 episodes, and he currently is the showrunner and executive producer of The Orville on Fox, starring Seth MacFarlane. And before we jump into this really important issue, David, I'm really curious, because my listeners are always curious, what got you to be a writer? Why did you begin to be a TV writer? Well, I, you know, I was, I watched a lot of television as a kid, like five hours a day. My mom was a single, uh, parent, a social worker. She worked, you know, nine to five job. And so I was a latchkey kid and I watched uh, a lot of television. All my friends were, uh, characters on television. And the, uh, at some point I had this sort of moment of realization of realizing somebody was actually writing a script that these actors were performing. And that sort of led me down a road of always sort of having in the back of my mind this idea that I would like to write for television. It's not what I studied in college. Uh, I was a political science major at the University of Chicago. I thought I was going to be a lawyer. And then I met a, a friend who had actually worked for David Letterman as, a, as an apprentice writer. And that opened my mind to the idea of, oh, this is a job. This is a real job. You can get paid to do this. and. And that that's probably that opened the door for me to look for jobs that might lead me to becoming a television writer. And, and I did and eventually got a job in New York after I graduated as an assistant to a television writer, a television writer producer who had been a writer producer in the 70s on sitcoms like Mary Tyler Moore and Rhoda. And she encouraged me and my then partner to write. And she sort of taught us how to break in and she helped us get our first job on the Golden Girls. So suddenly I was, I've gone from being her assistant to being a writer on a top 10 television show. And then two years later, I was fired from the Golden Girls. So that there, there you have the, the ups and downs of show business. And it's a great segue now into the life you live also as a labor leader. You put in many years on the board. And to my listeners who are very, sympathetic to the labor movement, know a lot about labor negotiations because I've talked about it in this program a lot. The Writers Guild faces a little bit of a different situation, which is in a typical labor situation. I'm a proud UAW member. The United Auto Workers negotiates agreement directly with Chrysler, and those are the terms and conditions. In your business, you have intermediaries and specifically agents and these talent agencies, and in theory, they are supposed to be advocating for you because they are your voice, your megaphone to get above minimums to do better than what the Writers Guild has negotiated with the studios. So where did this go off the rails? Where did you first figure out that the talent agencies essentially had, and this is the conflict we're facing right now, they essentially have a conflict of interest. Where did this go off the rails in your opinion? Well, the business started, has, the business had started to change um, 
in the last 20 years where the, where the talent agencies, uh, they get something called a packaging fee uh, for representing, mostly representing writers. And what that packaging fee is, rather than the agency commissioning uh, the writer's salary at 10%, uh, they don't commission the, sal- the salary of the writer they represent. They get paid directly by the studio. And although that seemed like a good thing for everybody involved, that like, oh, I don't have to pay commission and my agency's getting paid, what it led to is that agencies uh, corporately sort of changed the tactic and it became much more important for them to get that packaging fee. And that money that they get paid is not in any way directly related to what the writer gets paid. And as a result, uh, the agents, the agencies as companies are have a conflict of interest because they are fighting for their own income over that of the writer income. And in fact, that that now has grown, that business has grown in such a way that these agencies now have expanded their businesses and are now becoming producers of content and owning all sorts of other businesses and making sure that writers are earning the most that they can make is now no longer corporately their priority. Now, having said that, I mean, there are agents who do fight very hard for their clients and fight for their client's salary, but the business of agenting has changed in such a way that these these agencies, businesses are growing, they're hugely profitable. WME is is now attempting to become a public company Meanwhile, writer salaries have dropped. Uh, that the writers are making less and less in a in an environment where uh, the companies that make our product, who make the shows and movies that we write, are also enormously profitable. So it became a question of of the union sort of looking and saying, "Wait a second, our agencies are doing amazing. The companies are doing amazing. Why are writers making less?" Not just less, not just less from a cost of living standard, less actual money than than they used to make. It's 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 so that it be, and we started to realize that our our agencies as a whole were not fighting for our income. We're not fighting for our raises. We're not fighting to prevent us from doing free work. Uh, and and this meant that. The guild had to step in and say, we need to address this. And and the fact is, the the Writers Guild is the exclusive bargaining agent for writers. And that's in labor law. And we we delegate uh, some of that authority to agencies to negotiate what's called above-scale income. That is, income that is above what's in our agreement with the studios, because some writers are worth more than others. And uh, that the we let the agents make those deals, and and we are saying that if an agency wants to represent writers, they have to address these very serious conflicts of interest of packaging fees, and and now a lot of these companies are these agencies are going into producing. Now, let me extrapolate, I think, what you were explaining in terms of the reality. So you've got this talent agency that's essentially sitting in the middle between 
writers and these big studios. And on the one hand, a writer says, hey, I'm not being paid enough. But the talent agency is saying, wait a minute, if I go to bat for this right and really fight for them, am I going to queer or in- inhibit my relationship with the big studio? And so is that what you think was at play where writers were saying we're not getting paid enough because the talent agencies were not really giving as much as they should in terms of fighting for their rights? I think I, I think it's subtler. I don't think it's as conscious as, as the, the version that you just laid out. I think that what it is is because an agency's income is not tied to the writer income, they don't have uh, the motivation to fight as hard for every uh, scrap for a writer. So, for instance, uh, a writer, an agency might stop pushing on a writer's salary uh, because that agency is doing so well. And that agent is getting paid a, a good salary, and he he or she is not going to necessarily threaten their relationship with business affairs people by yelling and screaming and getting that writer an extra thousand uh, dollars, you know, uh, in their contract. Uh, that might not be worth it to that agent because if that agent's salary isn't connected to what that writer is making. If that agent's salary is connected to what that writer is making, they're going to fight for that extra $1,000 because that means that's an extra $100 going to the agent. And that's really where where I think we've lost our way is that agencies make all this money doing all this stuff. And, and, and many writers do very well. Uh, but overall, uh, writers aren't doing as well. And we believe it is connected to the fact that agencies aren't making money when we make money. They're they're making they have their own uh, pipeline of money through these packages. And I think that point you just made is really one that I want to underscore. That this fight is really about the middle class writer because I'm going to guess that you've been doing this for three decades. You've been a showrunner. That you have a lot of leverage and a lot of power in the industry. You still should get more than you probably are getting if I was your agent. But still, many middle class writers, and I know this from this industry generally, a lot of them don't necessarily sell a script um, every month. That a, a it means a lot to them to get that extra money to get above scale because that could mean the difference between having some comfort and being able to pay their bills versus being stretched thin, right? So you're really fighting for middle class writers here. Well, exactly, and I, I you know, I, I don't want to disagree with your assessment of my relative power in the industry. <laughs> I don't have any power. I have no power in the industry. Uh-huh. Uh, but I, but I'm lucky in that I, I have a good job. And I work for, uh, you know, uh, I worked for Seth McFarlane and he, he is a great collaborator and somebody that I get to work with. Um, but I, uh, I, this fight is about the middle and, and lower level writers who are, uh, struggling to ha- make a living in this business. And, and so you, it's really important, uh, to understand that like writers, uh, who are just breaking in uh, need uh, need some sense of uh, continuity and security. The, the guild helps provide that with health care uh, and residuals. But th- in order to have a career in this business, you need you need your advocates to be fighting for your wages. And uh, in a business that is so insanely profitable off of the work, uh, that writers do, 
those writers should be fairly compensated. And we know that our agencies as a whole have not been doing their job to make sure that writers are getting the salaries they deserve based on the profitability of their work. And in fact, this industry, with the addition of Netflix and all these other streaming services, there's billions of dollars more that's flowing through the pipeline in terms of profitability overall for these companies. And I'm not shocked at all, having talked about Walmart and Amazon, that these big companies are thinking just about profit and not about the workers. But did you find it a little bit disappointing that the talent agencies, and I know that many writers have personal relationships with individual agents. So sometimes what's obscured is the individual relationships because the bigger picture is these big companies. Were you surprised that they weren't willing to at least be mindful of this and come to negotiate where now you're ending up in court, you're suing each other. You've had to file suit against the association. Some of the agencies are now suing the WGA. Was that a surprise to you? Um, no, I mean, it wasn't. I mean, I, I think that, that it didn't come as a, a complete surprise to me because the, the, the business that we've been working in, the system that we've been working in is over 40 years old. The agreement that we're trying to renegotiate was negotiated in 1976. So all the agents who have worked, uh, who are working now, who are the power agents in the business, uh, they came up through the system. So they don't know another one. Uh, and so they're going to fight to keep it the way it is because they think this is the way you have to work. Uh, I I think that the surprise to me uh, that I think is going to be surprised to them is that a lot of writers, a lot of big name writers are, are discovering they don't need agents uh, because we've made every writer fire their agent in order to leverage the agencies to negotiate with us. Uh, I think they're going to be sorry that they they took this fight as far as they have and that they haven't sat down with them. I do think, however, at some point, some of these agencies are going to say, we miss our writer clients. Uh, and if the guild holds together, which is an if, you know, solidarity is all of our leverage. But if the guild holds together, these agencies are going to have to reconsider their position if they want to represent writers. Uh, one agency, Abrams Artists, just announced that they're going to negotiate with us uh, because they don't want they want to get back in business with their writer clients. And I'm hopeful that other agencies do that as well. Well, I have to say, as we wrap up the conversation, that one of the great things that I noticed, and this speaks to the solidarity among writers and the great work that the Writers Guild has done in organizing this movement and this campaign is thousands of writers who really want to work, obviously, and they're taking some risks. Thousands of them have fired their agents. And I was I was really impressed at the large number of writers who you got to do that. So it speaks to the, the work that you've done in terms of both explaining to members what the issue is and their willingness to take that step. Well, I mean, I think that the thing that that is interesting, I think, is that the agencies have tried to paint this as uh, writer's guild leadership is crazy, gone off the rails, is trying to destroy the business. And what they don't quite realize is the only reason that the writer's guild leadership did this, and I'm speaking of myself and the other members of the board and the negotiating committee, is because we were listening to the writers. Like the membership wanted this to happen, wanted us to do something about this. And 
So the solidarity in our union is bottom up. We don't do anything if the members don't want us to do it. Again, there are some members who didn't want us to do this, who think it's a mistake, but the overwhelming majority of them wanted us to do something about this agent-writer relationship and recognize the truth of what we were saying about how that relationship had gone off the rails. And so uh, that solidarity is the reason we're doing it. It it wasn't like we decided to do something and we convinced the members. It, It went the other way. The members were, please do something. We said, we think this is the problem. They said, we agree. Let's go. And that's what's happening right now. That'll do it for this week's podcast. I want to thank my guests, Eric Gerken, Marilyn Park, and David Goodman. Our audio editor, as usual, is David Hebden. Thanks to our sponsor, the American Postal Workers Union. Please do subscribe and support this podcast. You can do that by going over to workinglife.org, clicking on the podcast tab, and looking for our link to Patreon. Thanks for listening. Look forward to having you back next week. Music.